So uh, welcome back to week three. And uh, I want to start uh, with a recap of what Pastor Ron talked about for the first two weeks. So it'll just be a short, a short recap. As we work through for the next um, few months, this topic of biblical theology, this subject of biblical theology. Today, I'll be talking about the perished kingdom. And Pastor Ron, a couple of weeks ago, gave an intro, and then he started to talk about this theme of the kingdom that we see in the Bible. So Pastor Ron introduced us to biblical theology, and he gave us a helpful definition. And different theologians have um, defined uh, or um, communicated what biblical theology means. They have different definitions for it. But Pastor Ron gave us a good and helpful, and I think a simple definition that's, that's easy for us to remember. And it was something like this. Biblical theology is seeing how all of the Bible fits together as one story, from Genesis to Revelation. Seeing how all of the Bible fits together as one story from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible has one uh, main theme because it has one divine author. It has secondary authors, right? Paul and um, Matthew and uh, Moses and, and, and uh, all these different, these are secondary authors, but the Bible has one divine author, which is God. And so it has one primary theme. And Pastor Ron brought out some of the threads that we see running through scripture. Do you remember what that first thread was? I don't think he called it a thread, but that first uh, theme was? I'm not sure what's the first, but that the kingdom of God. Right. God is king. God as king. God as creator. The kingdom of God is one of those threads that we see running through scripture. And that looks like God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Simple way to remember that, this kingdom theme, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. <clears throat> and we know that as uh, just uh, has been pointed out here, great, great memory. We know that the Lord is, uh, he's author of creation. He's king of creation. And the Lord created man as the pinnacle or the crown of creation. So God creates all things and he calls them good, right? So he creates uh, beetles and birds and bison and boulders, any other bees? <laughs> he creates all things and he says that they're good. And then he creates man and he says what? This is very good, right? So he creates man as the pinnacle or the crown of his creation. And man as God's creation, is unique in his um, nature and his person in that he's able to do something that nothing else in creation can do. Nothing else in creation has this ability to do what? Nothing else in creation was created to do what? To be the image of God. He's created, man is created as the image of God, right? And not just... Um, Christians, not just those who are redeemed, we often think that only uh, believers now are the image of God, but unbelievers, all of, and, and any man, any person created is the image of 
God. Now that image is tainted and corrupted, and I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but all of men, all of creation, all of men are the image of God, created in the image of God. Okay, so Genesis 1 to 2 gives details of God's work of creation. The heaven, the stars, the clouds, plants, animals, canyons, camels, catfish, created all, all created by God. So from the top to the bottom, God's creation was good and very good. So sometimes um, my kids and I will sit on the couch and we'll watch a movie. Uh, every once in a while on a Friday, I might go out and hang out with some brothers or Korean might go out and hang out with some other sisters. And uh, on those nights when my wife goes out, when she does, me and the kids, we have like a little movie night. So we sit, sit on the couch and we watch something. Um, it's a lot of the same when you have kids, they are entertained with the same movies and shows over and over and over and over and over. So um, the little one, Sarai, she likes the movie Cars. So we sit down on the couch and we're watching Cars one Friday night. I ordered Papa John's and we had a daddy kids night. So we ate Papa John's and we watched Cars. Uh, Cars 3. Cars 3 is obviously it's about cars. Uh, they, they didn't want to surprise us, so they named it Cars. So it's Cars 3. So we're sitting and we're watching Cars. We're having a great time. And uh, the kids are up, they're running around, they're sitting with Daddy, and we're all just enjoying this movie Cars. And uh, Cars starts off with cars going around a racetrack. It's a very simple plot. So they're going around a racetrack, right? And they're racing. <laughs> Cars, racing, racing, racing around a racetrack. And there's some dialogue and whatnot. And I can't even think of the, the main car in the movie. Uh, but they're, they're going around the racetrack. And they're, uh, that's the first 30 minutes of the movie is just sort of some dialogue and some racing. And then at one point in the movie, things change. So the, the, uh, the, the, the main character, the car, He's going around the track, and he's about to uh, win this race. It's like the, the, the NASCAR. Now, I don't follow racing. The only thing I know about racing is NASCAR and Daytona 500. Those may be the same thing. They may be different. I don't know. But they're going around the track, and at one point in the movie, things change. So the background noise drops out, and it gets quiet. And as the car comes around the curve on the track, he blows a tire and the car ends up in the air. And it's dead silence in the movie. And my kids, <laughs> they're so funny. Even they feel something is different about what's happening here, right? So it gets quiet and they look at me with those big eyes and they look at the movie and they look at me and I'm like, yeah, let's get serious. <laughs> Right? And so the car is coming around the track, and he blows a tire, and he crashes. And the scene is of the car in slow motion turning in the air. And you see pieces falling off of the car. And it's all in slow motion. It's quiet. And it's the, the directors, they wanted to grip you with this scene. Something about this scene is different. Something about this scene is not like what's happening, what's been happening up until this point. And so it's slow motion and the car eventually turns and it turns and it turns 
and then the scene speeds up again and the car crashes and sparks and fire and pieces fly everywhere. And it's this moment in the movie that you notice something is about to change. Something in this, in this movie is going to be different from this point out because of this scene. And in the garden, up until uh, the fall, there's its beauty, its creation, its good, 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 very good. But then out of nowhere, there's this scene. There's something different about what's going to happen here when we see or when it's revealed in this story, the talking serpent, Satan. Something about this dialogue between this talking snake and Eve is different. Something is wrong here, right? So we know the rest of the story from this point out is going to be different. And so Genesis 3 brings us to this point and we see something happening that is crucial to the rest of the story. And Genesis 3 starts with this with these words, Genesis 3, chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, starts with these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So something about this is different. Everything is good, 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 very good. But then 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty. So let's read Genesis 3 verses 1 to 7 together and then we'll go back and talk through uh, this talking snake. <clears throat> so up until this point again everything's been good. Um, up until this point it's, it's just sort of been this sweet, this pleasant, uh, this pleasantness of creation and God showing his creative power and him being king and sovereign and all these things but then something different happens in Genesis 3, something that we know is bad. So Genesis 3, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Something is different about Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Uh, something uh, unique up until this point in the story, it's been good, 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 and very good. And then this, something is not right about this scene and it changes the rest of the narrative. 
Genesis 3.1 starts by saying that the serpent was crafty. So the serpent was cunning. He was subtle. He was sly. The Bible that actually describes the serpent and it uses uh, or the the Hebrew word here for uh, this, this cunning, this craftiness is prudent. So he was clever and he was careful in his subtle deception. And his when the Bible says that he was crafty and he was cunning, clever, prudent, it's saying that nothing about him at that moment alarmed Eve to the danger of his presence. Nothing about him was outstanding, right? So he didn't have a shirt on that said, I'm bad for you. He didn't have a shirt on that said, caution, I'm evil. (laughs) No, he was a crafty, subtle serpent, right? And that's usually what you find with the greatest deceptions. It's subtle, it's not alarming. Pastor Jack spoke about this a couple weeks ago and the uh, inheritance and how they'll have a ton of truth They'll communicate a bunch of truth, but then there'll be bits of lies. And the lies are cloaked in there. If, if the lie is a person, the person is wearing a bunch of fancy clothes of truth. But at the core, it's, it's a lie. And so even heretics and those who have gone straight away from sound doctrine have the same character traits as Satan. It's subtle, it's cunning, it's crafty. He flies under the radar, right? Nothing about Satan in the garden at that moment for Eve was alarming to her. Nothing about his presence was alarming. And again, that's what you find in uh, those who are deceiving. And this is a, a reminder for us. And I was thinking about our younger people in the congregation, those maybe under the age of of 18, uh, that we have to give thought to um, what we listen to, what we read, what we give our attention to, what we give our affections and our desires to, because in the world, the media, sin, Satan, it's not saying, look at me, I'm evil, but I wanna be your friend. Look at me, I'm bad for you, but I wanna be your friend. No, it's very cunning and it's crafty and it's subtle and it flies under the radar. And so the messages that are communicated uh, on social media and on TV or whatever those outlets are for entertainment, they're very subtle, they're very crafty. And young people are taken into these things very easily because everybody's doing it. I think about a lot of commercials now I've been seeing over and over and noticing this trend that a lot of commercials now, and whether they're selling cologne or jewelry or Tropicana orange juice, in these commercials there's, there's a, someone enjoying the jewelry or enjoying the orange juice and it's uh, maybe a family, it's a man and a woman and their children. And, or, and maybe it's friends, they're at the mall and they're drinking Tropicana, as, as if anyone does that at the mall. And then there's another couple. And the couple is clearly a man 
and a man, or a woman and a woman. And these commercials, they're not, they're, they're depicting this couple in a way to show you that these aren't just friends, this is a couple, right? They're on the couch together, or they're kissing, and it's a subtle, sly deception. It's to fly under the radar, right? And so it desensitizes us to the gross sin here. When I say gross, I don't mean like, oh, throw up gross. I mean deep-rooted sin, right? This is, this is uh, screaming out against God's original goodness and his intention in creation. But they're just showing jewelry. They're just trying to sell some jewelry, right? They just want to sell some orange juice, but it's a subtle deception. And we all have to be aware of that. Don't be deceived by the craftiness of the world or Satan. Again, Satan was crafty, he was cunning, he was flying under the radar. And this is usually what we see in the greatest deceptions. They usually sound reasonable. Satan's words to Eve, they sounded reasonable. Right? The Lord knows you will be like him, knowing good and evil. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I am going to get ahead of myself. What's the problem with Satan saying to Eve, the Lord knows you will be like him? What's the problem with those words? The Lord knows you will be like him. Remember what I said earlier, right? God created all things. Beasts, boulders, mountains, canyons, all these things. Good, 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 good. Comes to man, very good. I said something about them was distinct, remember? What's the issue with Satan saying to them, you will be like God? It's a lie. It's a lie. Because the divinity is not in them. Right. So the, the issue, the, the problem with what Satan said, you will be like God, they were made, they were the image of God. They were already <laughs> like God in that sense. They were the image of God. He's coming to them with something that should have been obvious. You will be like God. We're the crown of his creation. We're the only ones able to bear the image like this. God made them in his likeness. They were already like God. Not God, right? So we know the distinction between man, creature, and creator. They were not God, but they were like God. So this deception should have been obvious. Now, we'll talk about that more maybe a little later or next week. But when it comes down to the serpent, this, again, this talking serpent in the garden, it raises some questions. It should have raised some questions for Eve. He's a talking snake. Something about that should have been outstanding, right? So whether Satan had simply taken the form and likeness of a serpent or whether it was an actual serpent possessed by Satan, the point here is that the fallen angel did his scheming in a way that only showed itself to be harmful after the deception had taken place. Again, nothing about him at that moment to Eve was alarming. It was like talking to a street musician 
or something, a David Blaine, right? And you're talking to him and he's saying, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And the whole time he's like got his hand in your pocket and you don't even feel it. And then he's like, all right, have a nice day. And he's off. You don't even know what happened. <laughs> you're having this conversation, right? And he's wooing you with words and he's deceiving you as he slips the watch off of your wrist, right? <laughs> Satan, cunning, subtle, flying under the radar, but deeply deceptive. <clears throat> he engaged Eve with attractive words while slipping the watch right off of her wrist, so to speak. And before she even knew it, before she even knew what happened, he was gone. So the creature in the garden, the talking snake that tempted our first parents was Satan. Uh, the Bible identifies him as Satan. I don't have PowerPoints for us this morning, but if you go to Revelation 12, verse 9... The Bible gives us more data, gives us more clues as to the identity of this talking snake in the garden, this deep deceiver. Revelation 12, 9. Let me have someone read just verse 9 for us. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, thank you. <coughs> right? So we get more data and subsequent revelation that tells us, that gives us the identity of the serpent, the talking snake. Revelation 20, verse 2. Someone go there, or let's all go there, and then have someone read Revelation 20, verse 2 for us. And he, sized, and he seized the dragon, <laughs> that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, Thank you. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Right? The Bible gives us more data. Right? So, in looking at Genesis 3, there's some data, but if we go further in Scripture, it gives us more data on what's happening here in the garden and the identity of this serpent. Matthew Henry says this. <clears throat> Multitude of angels fell... But this that, that attacked our first parents was surely the prince of the devils, the ringleader in the rebellion. No sooner was he a sinner than he was a Satan. No sooner a traitor than a tempter. As one, as one enraged against God and his glory and envious of man and his happiness. He knew he could not destroy man, but by debauching him, by deceiving him. And that's exactly what the evil one did. He deceived them. Now, I've had conversations with people. I'm sure maybe you have, too. Um, the, most people, when they come down to, when, when they look at Genesis or if they have any familiarity with the Bible, even a little bit, when they think about Genesis, they think that God and Satan are sort of these cosmic arch enemies, right? So there's a big cosmic chessboard, and on one side is Satan, and on the other side is God, and they're playing chess. I've never played chess. Maybe I'm not smart enough for it. Uh, I was going to say checkers, but that sounds like a five-year-old. They were playing chess, right? And... 
uh, I know checkmate in chess. So the devil gets a checkmate or something against God. And that checkmate looks like somebody doing something bad. And the Lord says, ah, man, Satan, you're good. Human being, don't you know better? Right. And the game continues. Right. They, they play another game. And then God says, checkmate. And Satan says, man, human, didn't I teach you better than that? As if it's this cosmic chess game where there are equal rival enemies. Are they equal rival enemies? <laughs> Is this a tug of war for humanity? And sometimes one day the Lord's really strong. He's been taking his, eating his weeds or something and he wins. And the other side is Satan. And, you know, he's had his protein shake and he wins. No, that's a blasphemous thought. It's blasphemous. Satan and God are not rival enemies. We have to remember, right, up until this point in Genesis, God's creating good, 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 very good, right? And all the good, 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 Plants, animals, boulders, bees, beetles, and all that created beings, created angels. Satan is a creature. <laughs> He's a created being, right? He's an angel. He's an angel of light. He's a deceiving and a deceptive fallen angel. He's not God's arch enemy, right? That, absolutely not. If anybody, if you talk to anybody and they have that idea, it should be corrected quickly. He's not God's arch enemy. And actually, it's, it would be the most discouraging thought to live in a way that says that Satan is equal with God. That is, that's discouraging. <laughs> There's no, no, no hope, no joy in that. And I used to have that mentality. So I'm preaching to myself back then. But that's a really discouraging thought. Um, they're not equal rivals. <clears throat> when we allow God's revelation to inform our theological categories, we're told that Satan is a creature. Again, he's a fallen angel. He's a created being. He was part of the original perfect creation, but then he rebelled against God. Okay? <clears throat> all right, so all of that is under section one, the talking serpent. Let's jump down to part two in your notes, the act of rebellion. The act of rebellion. Okay, so back in Genesis, chapter three lays out for us the result of Satan's deception. Our first parents fell. Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and commit the worst act of rebellion against their kind and loving creator. And notice that the Bible doesn't let us put Genesis in a category with Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, right? This isn't uh, fantasy, it isn't fiction. This is, it's fact. The Bible doesn't give us the option to just put it into a, a, a Harry Potter category. Many would love to read this as fiction because then they would not have to be accountable to God. What do I mean? If Genesis 3 never happened, then there's no sin. If Genesis 3 is just a fairy tale, then there's no death. Sin entered death through sin. There's no accountability for sin. There's no judgment for violating God's command. 
If Genesis 3 didn't really happen, then our whole biblical theological structure falls apart, right? So if, if, if you think about, like my kids, they'll, they'll have their clothes on and there'll be a little string hanging out and they like to pull out the string. And eventually, if you pull out the string in the waist of pants, the whole, pant, the, the whole thing will fall down, right? If you pull at the string of Genesis 3, the whole structure falls down, it falls apart. Again, why? If there's no fall, then how do we explain this broken world? Everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, can look out and see something's wrong. Something's wrong. There's, uh, why is there murder? Why is there death? Why, why does my great-great-aunt Hester have to die of cancer? Right? Why do my kids get sick? Why is, when you turn on the news, whatever news outlet you're watching, it's only ever... Um, entertainment by way of disclosing the sinfulness in the world. They say, watch me, Channel 6, Channel 9, CNN, Fox, whatever. And it's just a display of the sin in the world. Nobody turns on the news to hear about the family that received uh, bikes for all of their kids on Christmas, right? They get bored with that. So the news outlets display the sinfulness in the world. And they can't do anything but that because our world is filled with sinfulness, filled with sinfulness. And that's the reality that the Christian knows that the, the Bible tells him, well, that has an, an origin. If there's no sin, then how do we explain death? More importantly, if there's no first Adam, there can be no second Adam, right? So if Adam is not a real historical person in history, then there cannot be a second Adam. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't let us off the hook thinking that Adam was just a fictitious person. If there's no first Adam, there's no second Adam. If this act of rebellion that put all men into a state of sin and corruption didn't happen, then what are we redeemed from? The Bible doesn't allow us to be neutral here. Okay? Romans 5. Let's, let's go there really quick. Romans 5, verse 12 through, uh, let's read 12 through 19. Let me have someone read that for us. So as we, whoever reads this, read it nice and loud. As this person is reading, look for the reality of Adam, right? The Bible contrasts Adam and Christ. Not a fictitious person with a real person, but a real person with a real person. And the Bible says something important for salvation about Adam and Christ. So let me have someone read verse 12 to 19 for us. One man. And Thank you, brother. Sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift. Not like the trespass, 
For if many died for one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Amen. Man, it's so much there. <laughs> so much there. But to keep the target in front of us here, the point is that Adam was a real person. You see this language, as through the one man, as through the one man, as through the one man. The Bible doesn't allow us to view Genesis as a possibility or, again, fiction or fantasy. Death and sin came through the one man. And now righteousness comes through the one man, Jesus Christ. The Bible says it compares Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ. Not fictitious, but a reality. And the explanation for the sin in the world, right? We know what the problem is, and we know what the solution is. <clears throat> so, just as Jesus was a real human being whose death achieved a real salvation, so Adam was a real human being whose sin resulted in a real fall. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. You also have to notice something else here that's very important. Do you notice, do you notice federal headship here? Do you notice Adam is not just representing himself? He's not just representing Eve. He's representing everybody. Right? So Adam is created as a representative, right? He's the federal head. Another way of saying Adam is a representative for all of mankind. And so he sins, death enters through sin, and we are counted as in Adam, right? All men in Adam. So we, are, we have one or two as our representative. It's either Adam or it's Christ. It's either Adam or it's Christ. If it's not Christ, then it's Adam. The representative nature of Adam here is clear in Romans chapter 5. He represents all men. You think about a basketball team. <clears throat> um, a, a, a basketball team plays, they have, I don't know how many people on the team, on an NBA team, maybe 30, 40, I don't know. Five men are on the court. Is that way too much? If it is, whatever. <laughs> they have five men on the court, right? They have 30 men on the bench, and those five men are playing, right? They're out there sweating, they're playing, they're working. 
if, th- if this is the NBA Finals, <laughs> y'all are seeing how naive I am when it comes to sports. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, five men on the field, or <laughs> on the court. <laughs> I know a little more than that. Five men on the court, right? They're playing, right? Those five men on the court, if they win the NBA Finals, everybody on the team gets a ring. Not just the five men playing, everybody on the team. Whether you ride the bench or not, you could have not played all season. And you get a ring, right? If they lose the NBA Finals, everybody loses. And next spring, they get back into it, and they start up camp. I think that's what they call it, right? Training camp. And then they go at it again. Because everybody lost. Because those five men who represented the team lost. Everybody wins because those five men who represented the team, they won, right? They were standing. They were People see them on the court, and they say they represent the Cavaliers, or these five men represent the Nuggets. I'm naive, y'all. Give me some help. These five men represent another team. What's that? Lakers. Lakers. Magic. Magic. I do know them. Right? (laughs) Orlando. There's a representative nature to Adam. He's a federal head. Fancy way of saying he's a representative. Right? So when you hear federal head or anything like that, don't be intimidated by it. He's, he's just, that just means representative. Okay? All right. <clears throat> so, where am I here? <clears throat> so Adam is a federal head. He represents all mankind. All right, so let me jump down with our few minutes left. Let me jump down to the third point on your sheet, sheet which is broken relationships. <clears throat> Actually, no. I'm going to go back up because I have some more to say on that second point. Um, I, I want to talk about why this sin, why this act of rebellion was so terrible. Why was it so horrific? <coughs> what was wrong with eating a bit of fruit? What was wrong? The Lord said, do not eat from this tree. I do, do not eat the fruit of this tree. Everybody want to say, don't. He said, don't eat the apple. That, that's not in the Bible. He just said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. We don't know what it was. <clears throat> he said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. They, took, they ate Adam and uh, Eve and Adam, who represents all mankind, he ate. Why was this such a terrible thing? Why was this so deeply sinful? Why was it treason? Why was it rebellion to the highest degree? I remember talking to a guy at Lake Eola. We were out there a few years ago, and we were evangelizing, and we were talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, the fruit, and he said, well, it wasn't rebellion. Satan told them that they would be like God. They just wanted to be more like their creator. And he had this elaborate, made-up reason why it was a good thing. They just wanted to be like God. We've already talked about that. They were already like God in that sense. That wasn't it. Why was it wrong for them to eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat? Why was it an act of blatant disobedience? Why did God not want them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The issue here is not just law breaking. The issue is law making. They wanted to be the ones to determine what's right and what's wrong. The Lord had already told them what's right and what's wrong. He already told them what was good and what was bad. They wanted to have the power in themselves, autonomy, to decide, to determine what was right and what was wrong. It was 
the reversal. God created man. Man was supposed to have authority over the plants and the animals. Now you see a serpent coming in an animal telling man what to do, and now man rebelling against his creator. It's a reversal of God's intention. It's a reversal of how the Lord originally created. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. Not just law breaking, but law making. The creature wanted to determine what was best. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to make one wise, all these things, she rebelled against the Lord. Absolutely. Absolutely. The great deception, and it's happening today. First John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. It's the same thing that's happened in the garden. What happened? The desire of the flesh. Eve, right? She wanted to be, to be wise. She wanted to be like God. Lust of the eyes. She saw the, tree, the, saw the fruit was good for eating to make one wise. The pride of life. It's the same thing happening now, as you said, that happened in the garden. This is man's issue. They want to be autonomous. We want separation from our creator. We want to be the one to determine what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. But the Lord has already told us. <clears throat> this has to be the final authority, right? It can't be myself. It can't be my own wisdom. Even as a believer, it can't be my own wisdom because I'm told not to lean on my own understanding. It has to be the Lord's wisdom which determines what we do, how we think, what's good, what's bad. Okay, last point here, broken relationships. So this act of rebellion in the garden has corrupted everything. Adam eats of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters in death through sin. And now our relationships are corrupted. Our relationship with God is corrupted. We want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Um, And the punishment here fits the crime. We turn away from the Lord in our rebellion. He comes, we hide ourselves. So we we hide from his presence. Not only that, but we are banished from his presence. That relationship is corrupted on our end. We're the evil party in that. Man's relationship with uh, man man and woman, it's it's, it's corrupted. So the perfect trust and intimacy is now gone. Adam and Eve make coverings for themselves to cover their nakedness. Neither wants to accept responsibility. God tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. When the Lord tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband, he's not saying that um, you're going to really want to love him so well. You're going to serve him so well, your desire will be for your husband. You're going to want your man. That's not what the Lord is saying. <laughs> what he's, that same phrase, that same word even, is used in Genesis 4, 7. Speaking, of, speaking to Cain, who murdered his brother. Uh, they both, Cain and Abel, bring an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. One was a grain offering, one was a, um, it's a it's an offering. Uh, something died, 
because it was a it was an animal. Um, there's a lot there, but both bring an offering to the Lord. The Lord accepts one, not the other. Uh, he accepts he accepts Abel's, not Cain. Cain kills Abel. The Lord says, "Do you not know that sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you?" It's it's not a good relationship when the Lord says, "Your desire will be for your husband." It's it, it's a bad thing. Um, it's it's the woman wanting to usurp and the man um, ruling tyrannically, right? So the woman wanting to be in the place of the man and the man ruling in such a way that's abusive and tyrannical. So we're told that the woman will no longer submit willingly to her husband's lead and he will no longer exercise it in a loving, self-sacrificial way that God has designed those relationships. And we see that, not only in marriage, but everywhere. Like I said earlier, this isn't just a man and a woman, your, your relationship is corrupt. This is friendships. This is the body. When we have strife and sin in the body, when we can't get along, when we're not striving to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, sin. <laughs> It's not just my wife and I, you know, we disagree. It's not just husband and wife. I have issues with, at times, my brothers in the faith. I have issues at times with my physical family, right? <laughs> Sin, it has corrupted everything. I have issues with my children. So why they, they gotta get the pow pow. Sin, right? Sin has corrupted everything. <clears throat> and then lastly, man's relationship with Creation is corrupted. So the harmony between human beings and the created order is, has ended. From now on, it will be a struggle to control it. Uh, the ground won't just produce easily what we're uh, a fruit or anything like that. It's going to be work. It's hard labor. I have a friend who uh, moved to Texas. He used to go here. He moved to Texas a few years ago. And he comes from a family of farmers. And he's told me about just what that looks like for them how we go into the store in public, so we pick up some fruit, we put it in a bag, put it on the scale, oh, three bucks, we go, you know, swipe our card, we go home and we eat. But he's like, yeah, it's a lot behind that. Let me tell you about it a little bit. And he's telling me about all that they had to do to be able to, from, from the tilling of the land and the fertilizing and waiting for this certain season. And if, and, if, and if the season doesn't come when you think it's gonna come, this happens and you gotta do this. And you gotta make up for this by doing that. And it's this whole elaborate thing, structure, for us to be able to pick up some oranges <laughs> or some cabbage. And it's hard work, that's the point. The point I took away from what he was saying, but what you doing, I don't wanna have to do. I'd rather just go to Publix or Aldi and pick it up. But it's hard work. It's labor that has to happen for these things, to, for the ground to produce fruit. When I go out in my front yard, I have a little flower bed, and it's filled with <laughs> weeds, which is not good. Um, and I have to pick them and spray Roundup on them and pick them. And the next week, it's weeds again. This is annoying. <laughs> Creation, even in weeds, we see this, 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 this disruption between man and creation. And it's much more than that. It's widespread. Um, the, the, the earth groans with hurricanes and tsunamis and everything else. But the point is, man's relationship with God has been corrupted. Man's relationship with man has been corrupted. And man's relationship with creation has been corrupted. 
all by sin, this great act of rebellion. Okay? So next week, we'll continue um, talking about the result of the Satan's deception and this great act of rebellion. Um, and we'll talk about the spread of sin from Adam, Eve, in the garden, and all of their posterity, all of Adam's children, all of his posterity now affected by sin. Okay? So any uh, quick questions or thoughts before we close out? So Anna, and then hit you for us. Um, I just had uh, my favorite uh, verse in scripture section is Isaiah 11, and that kind of shows you what, how we're going to be at peace with ourselves, peace with God, peace with each other, Amen. and peace with the creation. When Jesus comes to earth, <coughs> he will be king of kings and Lord of lords. And Isaiah 11 is just the contrast of yeah, absolutely. And that's happening now. The Lord is currently reigning, seated on high. And the fact that we can have unity in Christ and the bond in the spirit and the bond of peace, that's that's Christ's redemption through Christ that's happening now that will ultimately find its fulfillment at the end of all things. But that's 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 happening as right now, the Lord is seated on high, and it's a great encouragement. Thank you for sharing that. Forrest? You mentioned deception in media, and I think there's something even far greater than far more reaching sure. results, and that's deception within the education system, hmm. especially in the area of pre-school <coughs> grammar school, right. where they're teaching openly uh, started in like about 1989 with a book called Heather Has Two Mommies. Hmm. And there's another one is Daddy, Papa, and Me, or Daddy Has a Roommate, and all of this. And they teach this as though it's fine, right. wonderful, and good. Right. And there are a lot of schools throughout the country that are, are encouraging little preschoolers and grammar school kids to wear clothing and practice in the classroom the You for that encouragement. Prepare to be totally blasted, which just happened to me this week when I stepped into a Facebook conversation. Hmm. I'm never on Facebook, but I could not believe the hate and anger. Hmm. And it was about a, a Christian school where Karen Pence was teaching. And this is my cousin. Hmm. And it was, I, I, I was talking to Nance last night. I can't believe how much hate there was. Yeah, yeah. Tolerance becomes intolerance very quickly. But, yeah. So we'll hit one more here and then we'll close yeah, out. Um, one thing that I want to, you know, to say, I know you all know this, but I think it's important to say that um, Genesis 3 given to God by surprise. <laughs> there is no credit to the devil. 
so I just wanted to point that yeah, out. Yeah, amen, amen. The Lord was sitting on his high and holy throne, um, and Christ wasn't uh, plan B. <laughs> it wasn't right, the Lord always intended. Very good. No. Right. The Lord always intended to redeem, to, to display his glory, the glory of the triune God through the that. redemption of all things. We are going to get to it. <laughs> okay, I have to close out. Thank you. Um, I'll pray and then let's uh, continue to uh, think on these things and we'll continue to think about them together next week. Okay. Father, we thank you so much for your grace toward us. We thank you for your word, which is sufficient for life and godliness. Um, we know that you are a, a God who is ruling and reigning and sovereign, and you're, you're determined to display your glory in the redemption of all things through the person and work of the second person of the Trinity. Lord, we thank you for your kindness toward us, and uh, we pray that you will continue to uh, cause us to think through the reality of sin, uh, through the reality of the fall and corruption um, as we see it. And may it remind us that um, there is coming ultimately a, a, a time where all sin is done away with. Um, even now the kingdom is uh, established and you are bringing people into this kingdom as the gospel is proclaimed <clears throat> and Christ has done the second Adam has done what the first Adam did not do all of these things you have uh, divinely decreed would take place and all of these things are for the glory of the triune God so let us not forget that but let us not walk too quickly past the reality of sin and what we see in Genesis 3. So Lord, may you continue to inform our consciences, our wills by your word. May you bless us now as we go into the um, sanctuary to attend to the means of grace of the preached word and the Lord's Supper. And may you glorify yourself in the midst of this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.